Well, Larry, I think you probably, out of the people that appeared on Biota Live last year, generated a, a sizable amount of correspondence. We have had on some quite controversial guests, and thankfully you weren't too controversial. But you did leave a, a number of questions for the community, and I think the, the two interesting components that came through were the, the idea of the low-level algorithms that we started discussing, and this was the feedback from the, the uh, correspondent who emailed me about algorithms and blues that we should talk more about, uh, algorithms, what algorithms artificial life need, artificial life developers needed to know, kind of groundwork. But this also leads into the idea of teaching artificial life, which I wanted to talk to you about in a, in a kind of fuller format this evening. So if we start with the idea of algorithms, I mean, I, I do appreciate when you teach your course, particularly in terms of giving papers, the algorithms are there and the context is there. But if you were, you know, if you were talking to someone such as Virgil when you first met him or these kind of people, what kind of algorithms would you encourage them to, to read about or learn or start implementing in their own work? Well, to a certain extent, it depends entirely on, you know, what approach they want to take to artificial life. It's a pretty large area. Um, almost certainly they should know something about genetic algorithms because evolution is key to almost any of the AI systems. Although, I mean, there are people who study, um, you know, rabbit fox or uh, uh, rabbit and uh, lettuce patch, uh, Latka Volterra predator-prey interactions, and you watch the and, and study how, um, you know, populations of agents interact without evolving anything. So e even that's not a, a given that it's a necessity, but all the stuff I'm interested in involves evolution, and uh, so genetic algorithms is an obvious place to start. Um, uh, I happen to particularly care about models of nervous systems, so artificial neural networks is a key area, um, but not everybody has to do that. Some people are doing things that are a lot more... Um, uh, morphologically, uh, dynamically motivated, and so you know, spring networks and mass, you know, mass spring combinations such can be, uh, you know, inc incredibly rich in what they're capable of, the animations they're capable of producing. So, but but for me, neural networks is key. Um, uh, I suppose um, I, I'm cheating a little bit here and looking at some of your suggested notes in this area. <laughs> And you, which reminds me that some people very much need feel a need to uh, look at physics and incorporate some sort of physics engine. I I chose to try my best to finesse that in in my work just because um, I knew it would take an enormous amount of computational time and and wanted to uh, extract the most I could out of my artificial neural networks and uh, evolution. So looking at those two things initially and digging a little bit deeper than my kind of dot point notes. And neural networks as a concept, I mean, take, I mean, in terms of the folks coming into artificial life who may be listening to this podcast, I think, you know, when I used to develop Noble 8 prior to it becoming a, you know, fully fledged flag way giving open source application, I would get emails from kids as young as, you know, 13, 15. I think the youngest kid who emailed me was a 12 year old, but it was that kind of age group. And they were really looking for software that they could tinker with. And I appreciate it as well because this is fundamentally about the time that I started writing agar simulations myself. And my knowledge of mathematics back then was very, very applied. I didn't really understand calculus. I didn't understand, you know, all these kind of computational fluid dynamics that I think, you know, the folks such as yourself and myself kind of take for granted through our various studies in, in you know, university and what have you. But in terms of this kind of age group, 
where would you start in terms of writing a kind of genetic algorithm experiment? Well, you know, genetic algorithms are actually, I mean, there are, people spend their entire careers uh, studying how to make them work more efficiently under certain conditions and uh, how to make them work, work more robustly under certain conditions. But in principle, they're sort of delightfully simple. Um, you have this bit string, um, and you make the, the ones and the zeros of the bit string correspond to something you want your model to do, and um, you go around uh, flipping bits occasionally with random mutations, but that's pretty, pretty usually the small part of the changes, and more con- and the, the sort of the, the greater progression in evolution comes from the mixing and matching of so-called crossover, where you take a bit of DNA from one parent and then switch over and use a, the next bit of DNA from the other parent and then go back to the first and so on. And um, you just mix and match bit strings and... Um, produce the next generation and turn them loose. Uh, in principle, it's, it's sort of delightfully simple. Um, so then it becomes a matter of, well, maybe figuring out exactly what you want to apply it to. Um, and, gee, I mean, genetic algorithms have been applied to so many things from the shapes of airfoils to derive, you know, deriving the Mona Lisa, as we saw just recently. Uh, so In an artificial life context, however, I mean, I think probably the, the most simple two examples, the uh, cellular automata with genetic algorithms and central components, either with regards to the consumption of energy or various movement principles or breeding principles or all these kind of things. And I think what you're saying with regards to simplicity rings true with my own uh, experience and experiments as well, that you start putting genetic properties on a wide variety of factors and then the genetic algorithms do all of the work for you. So in that regard, I guess genetic algorithms are probably simpler for someone to initially implement than something like a neural network. Can you imagine someone without a a university-level education implementing a neural network? And if so, how do you think they should start? Um, I I can, actually. Uh, uh, Neural networks also, uh, here again, you know, there are a huge number of different models of of ways you approach it from incredibly complex Hodgkin-Huxley model with uh, uh, tens of parameters, uh, each of them biophysically motivated, uh, and you're solving differential equations, and, uh, you know, it's really complex. Two, something like I'm using in in Polyworld is actually remarkably simple, so-called summing and squashing neural networks. Basically, you just say, okay, you got a bunch of of artificial neurons. They have some activation, maybe between, oh, zero and one. And then you you look at the connections uh, between neurons, and you have some way of specifying what's connected to what, and then to calculate sort of the next state of one of these neurons, you just sum up the things that connect to it times the weight of the connection between those neurons, maybe shove it through a sigmoid, which is just this this 1 over 1 plus e to the minus x. It's just a simple way of compressing it back down into that range of 0 to 1. Boom, you're done. I mean, you know, that's, that's it. That's the extent of it. No differential equations, no integration. Uh, you're just calculating. And that's a discrete time neural network, which you, know, you can have recurrent connections or not. Recurrent just means that, you know, you can have a loop in the way things connect. It can, things connect back on each other. Um, or then you, you take a tiny step up and you have uh, continuous time recurrent neural networks where you have, instead of just having the next state calculated like I described, 
that all that calculation does is produce a delta, a slight change in the activation of the, 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 the downstream neuron, the postsynaptic neuron. Um, and from there, you can start talking about spiking models. But, you know, one of the best spiking models in the world, to my knowledge, is uh, Eugene Izakevich's model. has only four parameters, uh, two equations, and is remarkably simple to solve. Um, on purpose, he designed it to be computationally efficient and yet still produce an incredibly rich repertoire of uh, neural behaviors. So, yeah, I mean, it does take... Oh, I mean, it's it's easier, I suppose, if you can if you're comfortable writing down the mathematical equations. But about the most complicated thing you have to write down for some of these models is a summation. That's that's the hardest bit, and conceptually summations are awfully simple. So yeah, I can imagine um, uh, tinkerers and and you know just somebody who's interested in it but not studying it, not doing it for a living, uh, making some progress in this direction. And I think tinkering is the critical component. I mean, certainly from all the artificial life developers I've, I've talked with, I mean, yourself included, it is a, a time tinkering, you know, if, if it's taken as a hobby or an academic interest or what have you, the time component is critical with regards to artificial life development. You're, you know, the time-tuning, time-tuning, time-tuning component in order to get any of these simulations up and running and really if there's something behind all of these different ideas it's the ability to write code observe what's going on then tune the code in some way or let the code tune itself in the case of genetic algorithms so let's talk a little bit more about physics and this is interesting with the idea of of kind of artificial life in simulated environments i know polyworld has a, a simple simulated environment certainly a number of the folks we've we've had on have simulated environments i encourage Gerald de Jung when he comes on to put his stuff in a simulated environment. Bruce, as you listen in, I mean, obviously the, the genetic algorithm component probably is slightly more uh, connected with what you're thinking about in terms of the Evo grid, but if you have a kind of toolkit that you're going to be using for uh, the Evo grid deep, I mean, surely it will contain all of these components in some regard. Oh, it's interesting. Uh and Larry was talking because I was trying to think of how how neural networks or artificial life GAs and whatnot fit into the evil grid. And one of the things that the evil grid is about is it's about that the algorithms have to sort of self-assemble as well as the objects. So hmm. my whole focus is, is not to write a, a GA or anything like that. It's actually to build a physics and ha throw enough computing at it that you get an origin event. So origins of vesicles and origins of... It's all sort of described pretty well in the, the funny, whimsical movie that we made that we launched, I guess a couple of weeks ago was, was, was launched. But it's, it has to emerge. So that's the challenge of the evolution grid is, a, is what Dick Corden calls the artificial origin of life or the art, origin of artificial life. Can't actually build algorithm and structure. You can only build physics. But you, in some regard, I mean, I think this is the the ultimate, and this isn't the religious intelligent design, but this is certainly the intelligent design discussion that we've had in in prior lives previous. You need to have some appreciation of what mechanisms need to come through these algorithms in order to brew the soup, to use a, a metaphor. So, I mean, I think the irrespective of whether you write these things explicitly. And this is one of the beauties of the kind of 
yeah, interaction between neural networks and genetic algorithms that Larry has with Polyworld that also we've talked about with Steve Graham, that on some level the mathematics does break down into primitives which are, are intercompatible. But you raise an interesting point with this idea of physics um, in terms of the, the nature of simulated environments and certainly talking to Larry and uh, talking to Gerald with regards to the physics that he's implemented in uh, Darwin at Home and also Jeffrey Ventrella with regards to Gene Paul. I mean, the question of physics doesn't necessarily have to map onto uh, real-world physics. It doesn't have to map onto uh, gravity, Newtonian physics, even quantum mechanics. Physics, as we talk about it in an artificial life context, just, I guess, describes some uh, mathematical constraints of the system. Is this your understanding, Larry? Yeah, in fact, I mean, uh, I, I've been thinking about an entirely different system that was based more sort of on artificial chemistry, um, I suppose one step up from uh, an artificial physics. Um, and I can certainly imagine wanting to uh, build a system that, that starts at that level. Um, and it makes a lot of sense to me. I, I like what, what Bruce says about, uh, you know, not having to build any algorithms in, in, any, in any higher level algorithms in. But on the other hand, we're all you know, we're working at different levels, and I think for now at least that's a good thing. Uh, the, a lot of these different approaches should be explored. Um, Chris Langton uh, put it nicely. I said, you know, we all have to write an IOU at some level, and it's just a matter of deciding what level you want to write that IOU at. Um, and as you said, it's important to sort of understand a little bit of the um, – the, the, the physics or the real-world dynamics um, of the system you're trying to model. Um, when Danny Hillis, working on the connection machine, was uh, trying to model uh, fluid dynamics, model fluid flows by modeling individual little point particles, they actually managed to get really good, you know, indistinguishable from reality, quote-unquote, um, fluid dynamics um, out of point masses, you know, bouncing off each other with billiard ball physics, um, moving at unit velocity on a hexagonal grid. Um, but each of the design decisions that they put into their, their very, very simple model was kind of understood by people who knew fluid dynamics and knew physics and were, were thinking about this in terms of, you know, molecular interactions only with the ultimate simplified versions of molecules. And as long as you kind of write your IOU at the right level for what you want to study and you design the system at that level to the best of your ability, taking into account what you know, you can oftentimes get these emergent levels um, that you don't program in and uh, have great success at that. Uh, when I look back at uh, early A-Life algorithms, um, uh, you know, Tom Ray um, wanted to go in search of um, uh, sort of evolutionary phenomena that that he, he knew about um, from from his biological work and uh, his ecological work, and uh, you know modeled things at a certain level with his evolving code and was able to easily produce all the things that he he was searching for and at each stage, someone we, we we pick our levels, we write our IOUs, and you know if we've done a decent job of understanding the the lower level system, people are actually surprisingly uh, successful at evolving that next level up. 
certainly inspirational words for, for Bruce in particular. The next thing that occurred to me, and particularly through my recent writing in Nature Inspired Informatics, was the kind of level that we traditionally associate artificial life development with, particularly the ideas of, of genetic algorithms. And certainly writing for Nature Inspired Informatics, but more importantly doing the chapter reviews for it, reading the kind of cutting edge associated with genetic programming made me realize that perhaps what Bruce is doing is almost a genetic programming experiment rather than genetic algorithms experiment in terms of throwing just a wide variety of more you know, possibilities into the soup and seeing what emerges. And certainly when I look at uh, Carl Sim's early work and these kind of moving blocky creatures which still are, are fundamentally part of the artificial life community i mean this is what you know gerald and brevet and framsticks are all moving towards i think framsticks has a small genetic programming component but i've always wondered what would emerge out of a true genetic programming implementation of artificial life larry you have a good surveying of the community what's your thinking associated with genetic programming well, I think genetic programming is really basically just genetic algorithms applied to trees of list functions. Um, so it, it's not surprising that it does well. Um, it's, uh, it, it's, a, it's a fine uh, environment in which to work. Uh, Carl Sims has worked both on the aesthetic selection of those beautiful, beautiful images he created and the blocky creatures was effectively genetic programming because he was evolving list functions uh, and, and not necessarily just with bit strings, he was doing it on, you know, uh, graph trees. Um, so uh, effectively, he was already doing genetic programming. Um, and it, 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 uh, it, it's one very good way to go. One thing I think is interesting about EvoGrid, if I understand this correctly, uh, Bruce, and please, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think Bruce doesn't even want to build in genetic programming or genetic algorithms or anything. He wants to put in physics and let evolution go to work, which is an interesting approach. I mean, evolution really is this sort of this tautology, this unavoidable tautology uh, that, you know, that which survives persists. And uh, if, if you have the right kind of system capable of sustaining sort of continuous energy flow and continuous variation and some method of reproduction, some method of replication. Let's stay away from reproduction. That brings in other ideas, but replication, just a, a copying of some sort. The things that copy themselves the best and innovate in obtaining the resources to make more copies um, are effectively carrying out evolution and, and genetics, but without having any algorithms built in. And that's that's a, sort of a lovely vision, a lovely way to, to try things. And I guess my question back to you would be, could entropy be the, the fundamental selection component? I mean, when I think about EvoGrid-based and genetic programming, it's not traditional, as, as you say, genetic programming. It is that the physics is, is part of the uh, the selection there, or if it's not an entropic process, I can't imagine how it would be phrased, but that there are these components in the physics that actually makes the kind of selection that moves towards, uh, be it RNA, be it DNA, be it something that's completely abstract and perhaps analogous or perhaps not analogous at all. I mean, I think that's the beauty of, of having some form of physics that you almost get the precursor to what you want to get in, in you know, g traditional genetic algorithms or genetic programming just in the physics. Do you, do you see that metaphor? Yes, I do. Um, in fact, 
if you go back to um, um, Schrodinger's What is Life, 1940-something, um, he put forward the idea that the defining component of life is basically a, um, uh, a a localized reduction in entropy, a localized defeating of you know local and temporal and temporary uh, defeating of the second law of thermodynamics. And he made a point that basically life uh, feeds on negative entropy, um, and basically negative entropy. The way I like to think of it is not so much entropy owing, but it's exactly the same thing. But I think of it as, as information. I mean, positive information is negative entropy. And so I think of living things as these little islands of uh, information, that self-sustaining information. Um, and, and in fact, I mean, uh, you can almost think, I think, in a very real way, it's, it's just a metaphor, but um, I think information is so fundamental that you can almost think of like the the matrix those that those lovely images of all the letters floating down on the screen forming the reality of the the, the matrix uh virtual reality you can look at our re- very real physical reality and see sort of ones and zeros uh streaming from the sun coming in and providing not just free energy but free information providing information there's a fellow um uh what's his name um I'll have to look it up. There's a, there's a terrific little book on evolution and information. Um, Avery, Avery is his name, that um, he manages to calculate the number of bits associated with the absorption of a photon uh, at room temperature. So it's like if if a if a, a photon hits a cell on a plant and it's just turned into heat, that's how many bits effectively are lost at that point. But being a living system, the plant can take that, that, that information and use it to extract energy and to do something useful and to sustain itself and sustain this little local island of, of negative entropy, of information. So, yeah, I think entropy is both key to understanding life and, and key to measuring and, and determining what's going on in our, um, in our artificial systems. And ultimately, I think we'll get around to using it to understand what's going on in our physical systems. Certainly, certainly. And moving a step up in terms of what artificial life developers should know when they come to creating artificial life environments, how important do you think uh, kind of broad surveying of artificial intelligence is with regards to creating artificial life systems? Mm, well, I'm a little biased there. Um, I, 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 I sort of got into this about the time that people were realizing that symbolic processing and the more traditional good old-fashioned AI, GoFi, um, was not really panning out, at least not as a path to really general robust intelligence i mean it's done great things with expert systems and uh there there are more examples of products based on gofi than there are on artificial life i'm pretty certain but um uh as an approach to leading to real general artificial intelligence gofi wasn't really working out and so i've i've eschewed it uh, almost across the board and just uh you know stayed away <laughs> So, but, I mean, the interesting thing about contemporary artificial intelligence is so much of it wants to be artificial life fundamentally. I mean, this is this is uh, Emin Harvey. I mean, these are all these kind of, I mean, fundamentally Rodney Brooke as well. I mean, these are all these, 
you know, artificial life, artificial slash artificial intelligence researchers. And I oh, think yes. Now, whether they use the words artificial life or not, and actually some of them do. I went on an artificial life world tour with Chris Langton and Rodney uh, Brooks. So, I mean, I know he's well aware of his connections with the community. Um, uh, whether they currently and routinely use the terms or not, they're definitely doing related work to A-Life. Certainly, certainly. And, I mean, I think it's something that, uh, you know, people may need to uh, at least have a, a precursory sense of in terms of um, at least the popular connections that people want to make between artificial life and artificial intelligence. So you mentioned briefly predator-prey models and also, I guess, somewhere through the discussion of physics, uh, sustainable simulation dynamics, these kind of problems. I mean, again, as you as you started this discussion, you said really it's to do with the kind of simulations you're looking to write, and ultimately these two components are part of that. Right. Well, I knew that I wanted to at least approach artificial intelligence in you know in a very different way, in a distributed processing way, and being heavily influenced by the early uh, PDP books, parallel distributed processing books, and uh, connectionism and all that. Um, and uh, so I, I very much needed to start at the sort of neural network level. I, I, I didn't want to try to evolve neural networks from fundamental physics. Um, so, and but in fact, I've looked at something that ends up looking a bit like predator-prey models in Polyworld, which is just basically um, the distribution of agents to food. Uh, but uh, it, it was really a matter of them over overforaging one patch, making the other patch more attractive. And so the agents would uh, start foraging over there, and then they'd overforage that and make it less attractive. And it kind of had the dynamics of, uh, you know, the... the sort of food population versus the agent population had this predator-prey, Lotka-Volterra dynamics that ultimately settled into what's called an ideal free distribution where the agents distributed themselves very nicely according to whatever fraction of the food was in this patch. You'd have exactly that fraction of agents uh, over there and, and, and so on for each of the patches. But, uh, um, I mean, these are all... That, that was an outcome of, of, of my system um, but people look at that from sort of first principles, um, and I'm not sure exactly what you're after, well, after with sustainable simulation dynamics, but that makes me think that, uh, again, we have to be so, try to be smart in picking our, um, our models so that we can um, basically coax the maximum information out of those compute cycles that we're we're using up so rapidly and uh, be able to run these things and get useful, interesting results in reasonable time periods and um, and sustain them long enough to, to, to get useful, interesting results. Uh, I have had people, uh, you know, ask me, well, do you have Polyworld running uh, around the clock all the time? And I thought I should, might should do that, but mostly I've sort of used it for targeted uh, specific experiments. And in fact, most of what I'm doing these days is geared towards looking at the um, the complexity of the neurodynamics in the evolving agents and um, and hope to get to the point where I can start teasing apart what specific design patterns in the brains of these agents is giving rise to the complexity of dynamics, figure out what part of structure is causing all this interesting function. But... Um, that's just the that, that's just the current uh, current theme. 
certainly I'm having a lot of fun with it currently with regards to Noble Ape as well, and I think it's a, something which people can do as they start writing artificial life simulations or once they have a, you know, a existing artificial life simulation, start looking at running it for, for long periods of time and what comes out of that. And certainly in terms of bug tracking and things like that, you do tend to find quite curious extremes uh, over long simulation cycles. 